0: From PRX Studio
1: 360 One flew east, one flew west One flew over the cuckoo's nest
2: I'm Kurt Anderson, and in this hour of Studio 360's American Icons, it's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. It was Ken Kesey's first book. He was just 27, but it tapped into the zeitgeist and made him an overnight star. Before 1962, there was no real counterculture, no hippies, no sex, drugs, and rock and roll generational tide, just a few beatniks and artists and weirdos people who were very much on the fringes during the 1950s. But in the early 60s, wall-to-wall, all-American normality was starting to break apart. There was a whole real strong need for this counterculture. Brad Dourif, who played Billy Bibbit in the movie.
3: And One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was very much an expression of that. Let's get out of this rut we're in. Let's try to be like ourselves. I mean, people were dropping acid for a reason. They really want to have an authentic experience.
4: Yeah,
5: baby. Is that Ken? This is Ken Babs, uh, formerly the intrepid traveler of the Merry Pranksters.
2: Ken Babs met Ken Kesey when they were grad students together at Stanford. While Kesey was there, he got a job working the night shift at the place that would inspire his first novel. Did Kesey ever talk with you about his experiences having worked in a mental hospital? Oh
5: yeah, sure. Uh, uh, He got the job about six months after uh, his friend Vic Lovell uh, hipped him to these experiments at the VA hospital in Menlo Park, real close by there, uh, in which they were giving these guys and girls uh, different drugs and would uh, then come in every once in a while and check on them, see how they were doing, ask what they were feeling and all that. One of those drugs was LSD. It sure was, and uh, nobody even knew anything about it. But The experiments ended, and Kesey got a job in that same building uh, as an aide in the uh, mental ward.
4: His literal working experience in an institution deeply affected him.
2: Lydia Yuknovich was a student of Kesey's in the 1980s and remained a friend until his death in 2001.
4: And tapped into a core belief he had about the big fight, which is life between small warriors and big systems.
2: And when the young Ken Kesey saw those mental patients, he saw them as victims, not of illness, but of conformity. They were misfits being molded by a system, the system, into more acceptable citizens.
4: And he had this theory that what was wrong with Americans was that industry and corporate America had dispossessed us of our souls in a similar way that Whites had dispossessed Native Americans of their souls when we conquered them. And he thought what we had in common is this dispossession.
2: Kesey's identification with
4: Indians ran deep, and it started
2: early, as he told his friend Ken Babs.
5: He was really influenced when he was young by uh, going up to eastern Oregon along the Columbia River with his dad and brother going... uh, hunting and they would stop at Celilo Falls where the Native Americans had their fishing scene on the on the rocks and the platforms and everything.
2: Salilo Falls had been a tribal fishing community for thousands of years. It was destroyed when the federal government dammed up the Columbia River in 1957.
5: Kesey was there the day they uh, let out the water and all the tribes were there and they were beating drums and uh, chanting and crying and calling out prayers to the uh, river gods, and all of a sudden, out of the water came this big hulking guy with long, streaming, wet hair leaping through the people and out on the road, and here come a big cement truck and, boom, flatten that sucker And there. Keezy went out there and looked, and nobody was there.
2: Or anyhow, that's what Keezy told Ken Babs. We don't know for sure that Kesey was even there that day. I'll tell you what it is. This all is a myth
5: now. It's all true, even if it didn't happen.
2: So the myth is the truth, as you're saying.
5: The myth will always be the truth. I mean, we, <laughs> it's like Tim Littery said, if you remember what happened, you weren't there.
2: But in any case, the destruction of Celilo Falls definitely made an impression on Ken Kesey.
5: Well, flash forward now to he's uh, working at the hospital, and he's looking through the window at night uh, watching the patients, and he's drunk peyote tea. And he's sitting there, and the patients are starting to get very wobbly and strangely colored. Suddenly, coming up right in front of the window is this big guy with black long hair, broad face, wide eyes, uh, looking straight at Kesey. And uh, uh, then he kind of sinks down, and there's water rising up to his eyeballs and over his head, and then he swims away. He's a salmon. Kesey... Picked up his pen and paper and started writing. They're
1: out there. They're out there. Black boys. Black boys in white suits up before me to commit sex acts in the hall and get it mopped up before I can catch them.
2: This is Ken Kesey reading from the novel, from an audiobook.
1: They're mopping when I come out the dorm, all three of them sulky and hating everything. I creep along the wall, quiet as dust, but they got special sensitive equipment detects my fear, and they all look up. Here's the chief, the super chief, fellas. Here you go, Chief Broom. Stick a mop in my hand and motion to the spot they aim for me to clean today, and I go. He knew how to put a story together.
2: The story takes place on a mental ward around 1960. The orderlies are referred to demeaningly as black boys, a term that wouldn't have been uncommon then. The patients are all white, except the half-white, half-Indian called Chief. Everybody and everything is controlled by Nurse Ratchet, who sees to it that the patients are kept medicated and docile. And then a new guy comes and shakes things up.
1: My name is McMurphy, buddies. R.P. McMurphy, and I'm a gambling fool.
2: If you've seen the movie, you can't help but imagine Jack Nicholson as McMurphy. Wiry, scrappy, sly. But McMurphy in the book is different. He's big, broad, powerful, scar-faced, larger than life.
4: One of the reasons McMurphy is so giant and romantic and crazy is because he comes through the point of view of the chief, who's kind of romanticizing him.
2: That's a key difference between the book and the movie. The whole story in the book is told by Chief Bromden, who never speaks.
1: They don't bother not talking out loud when I'm nearby because they think I'm deaf and dumb. Everybody thinks so.
6: You know, Indians have learned to be quiet around white people because they'll steal everything.
2: <laughs> Sherman Alexi, Pacific Northwest Native American. I'm a Spokane Coeur d'Alene Indian. Poet, writer, filmmaker, and lover of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. This book, where the Indian
6: is the, the eyes through which we see this entire world, is certainly revolutionary.
1: If my being half-Indian ever helped me in any way in this dirty life, it helped me being cagey.
6: Chief's interior life is very rich. You know, his silence is a defense.
1: I hide in the mop closet, and I try to keep from getting scared. I try to think back and remember things about the village and the big Columbia River. Think about... Ah, You know, it
6: contains so much more of his personal history and his own struggles with mental illness than the movie even gets
2: close to.
0: The central question that Kesey raises in the book is what's sane and what's insane?
2: Barbara Tepe Lupak taught at the State University of New York and wrote a book about the depiction of insanity in American fiction.
0: The people who are incarcerated in the hospital ultimately seem to be saner than the people who were beyond the hospital's walls.
1: The ward is a factory for the combine. It's for fixing up mistakes made in the neighborhoods, and in the schools, and in the churches. When a completed product goes back out into society, all fixed up, good as new, it brings joy to the big nurse's heart. Something that came in all twisted is now adjusted to surroundings, finally.
2: The Combine is a key concept that made One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest a kind of manifesto for the counterculture it helped bring into being. It's the establishment, the man, the system of control that governs our lives.
1: It's the big nurse.
2: In the book, Nurse Ratched is depicted as almost a robot. She's barely even human.
1: Her face is smooth and precision-made like an expensive baby doll, everything working together except the size of her bosom. A mistake was made somehow in manufacturing, putting those big, womanly breasts on what would have otherwise been a perfect work.
6: Well, the novel is is really misogynistic.
4: (laughs) How could it not be? Try to find a man in 1962 who wasn't sexist. (laughs) You'd have had a hard time.
2: That's Leslie Horst. In the mid-1970s, she wrote a critique of Cuckoo's Nest called Bitches, Twitches, and Eunuchs, Sex Role Failure and Caricature. It was published as part of the Viking Critical Edition of the novel.
4: The big nurse is a perversion of femininity, but she's also a reflection of the danger of women who have power.
1: We are victims of a matriarchy here, my friend, and the doctor is just as helpless against it as we are.
2: And it's not just Nurse
4: Ratchet. Harding's wife is the classical bitch. Billy Bibbett's mother is the classical smothering, uh, Oedipal mother, and she's in cahoots with the big nurse.
2: And Big Chief's mother is a white woman who convinced his Indian father to sell the tribal lands to the government. Pretty much all the bad guys in the book are women.
0: But here's the twist, and I think it's a very important one. It's an essential one to understanding the novel. Kesey's world is a world in which the natural roles are reversed. The women are not villains in the novel because they are women. They are villains because they have chosen to repress everything that's good about womanhood. And conversely, the men have become all of the worst elements of women. Petty, bitchy, telling on each other, uh, uh, being soft and emasculated.
1: Cheswick there is a rabbit. Billy Bibbit is a rabbit. All of us here are rabbits.
0: So rather than seeing the novel as misogynistic, I would suggest that we see the novel as an indictment of all those, men as well as women, who misuse their authority and who deny their humanity, and in the particular case of Nurse Ratchet, their womanhood.
2: The most memorably nice women in the book, actually, are a pair of prostitutes, friends of McMurphy's, Candy and Sandy. McMurphy sneaks them into a party on the ward and asks Candy to deflower the timid, nervous stutterer Billy Bibbit.
1: "Don't you m- 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 mama me, Billy boy. It's too late for you to back out now."
2: When Nurse Ratched discovers the whole thing, she threatens to tell Billy's mother. "What worries me, Billy, is how your poor mother is going to take this." Which so terrifies Billy that he slashes his throat.
1: She walked straight to McMurphy. I hope you're finally
2: satisfied. McMurphy, enraged, attacks Nurse Ratched.
0: Rips open that starchy white uniform of hers and exposes her huge breasts and exposes her femininity.
1: Two nippled circles started from her chest and swelled out and out bigger than anybody had ever imagined.
0: The men see that she's not a machine. She's just a woman.
4: Her biggest problem, from my point of view as a reader, was that she couldn't wrench herself away from that oppressive system, not that she was some evil or bad woman.
2: I don't think it's too much of a spoiler at this point to recall that in his battle with authority, McMurphy ends up martyred. After the assault, McMurphy is given a lobotomy. He's turned into a vegetable.
4: Kesey was a fan of... Westerns. (laughs) Westerns. <laughs> and he was particularly fond of Westerns where the savior cowboy comes in and shoots everything up and then dies in the end and becomes this sort of hero song.
6: I, I think it's his destiny. He courts death. And, and I don't necessarily think he ever embraces life. And, and I think in the end, he's incredibly cynical. Uh, I, I don't think there's any hope in him.
2: When Chief Bromden sees what they've done to McMurphy, he suffocates him with a pillow and breaks out of the ward. In this Western, it's the Indian who rides off into the sunset.
1: Mostly, I'd like to look over the country around the gorge again to bring some of it clear in my mind again. I've been gone a long time.
2: When we return, the fight over cuckoo's Nest
6: the fact that it turned a, a a story about an Indian looking at the world into a star vehicle for Nicholson, you could argue that all the producers and filmmakers actually ended up being a lot more like Nurse Ratchet.
2: Hollywood does its thing. You're listening to Studio 360's American Icons from Public Radio International in association with Slate. I'm Kurt Anderson, and in this hour of Studio 360's American Icons, we're talking about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, a groundbreaking novel that became an Oscar winning film.
1: Those of us who write books are seldom happy with what the movie makers do to our creations.
2: That's Gore Vidal, who presented the award for Best Adapted Screenplay at the 1976 Academy Awards. The night was practically a sweep for Cuckoo's Nest. It won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Adapted Screenplay.
1: Lawrence Hauben and Bo Golden
5: for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest.
2: Ken Kesey barely got a mention that night. Kesey had sold the rights to the book back in 1962 to Kirk Douglas. Douglas wanted to make the book into a film, but his first step was to adapt it for the stage. The Broadway play got mixed reviews. Douglas couldn't get financing for a movie, and around 1970, his son Michael Douglas and the producer Saul Zantz took over. They hired Kesey to write a screenplay.
7: And they hated it. The film that I believe Ken Kesey had in mind was more like what Terry Gilliam would do with, say, Brazil or something like that, something very wild and surreal.
2: Douglas Unger teaches a class in screenplay adaptation at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. He always has his students start by looking at Cuckoo's Nest.
7: You could redo this film right now in an expressionistic way, and I think it would have a tremendous impact, and it would be a a wonderful way to do it. Michael Douglas and Saul Zantz had quite the opposite view And they made the other logical choice you would make in adapting this screenplay, which is to put the focus on R.P. McMurphy, make him the main character, and follow him more than any other character.
2: It so upset Kesey that he sued the filmmakers on the grounds that they'd used his name in the credits, but it wasn't his work. He settled for a small percentage, but refused to see the film.
4: He vowed he wouldn't see it. Well, he had a sneaker view, but in a general sense, he never saw it.
2: Lydia Yuknevich, a student and friend of Ken Kesey's.
4: He said it was like the story had been twice removed from the chief and that he put the chief in there to give, in particular, a Native American his story back and that that story not only got taken away from that character but put into the mouth of a charismatic white male um, upset him.
6: Sherman Alexi. It really is a form of Hollywood colonialism, uh, the movie, which is still a great movie and deserves all its accolades, but the fact that it turned a, a, a story about an Indian looking at the world into a star vehicle for Jack Nicholson, you could argue that Milos Forman and all the producers and filmmakers actually ended up being a lot more like Nurse Ratchet.
2: But consider when the film was made, and it's easy to see why the filmmakers would choose a more straightforward approach to tell the story. Back in 1962, Kesey's psychedelic imagery was new and exciting. By the mid-70s, that stuff was on TV all the time.
3: A lot of people, um, by the time that Cuckoo's Nest came out and was a movie, had taken acid.
2: Brad Dourif, who played Billy Bibbit in the film. Everybody
3: had an idea of, you know, seeing the world through some kind of level of, of uh, something almost schizophrenic, where you're really, really out of touch. You're in a different reality, man. And so I don't think that was unique enough a vision anymore. Much more interesting to have normal life, of people who are, you know, just going on with their little institutional lives, playing cards and really used to their life and having some guys say, what are you guys doing here? Why don't you get out? There's a world out there. Live your lives.
2: You know, much better. So they went realistic. To get that realism, the producers hired Milos Forman, a Czech emigre director known for smart comedies and a quasi-documentary style with lots of improvisation. They wanted to film on location at a real metal hospital. Oregon State Hospital, where the novel takes place, said yes.
8: Welcome to the Oregon State Hospital Museum of Mental Health. Uh, we opened this museum October.
2: The building where the movie was filmed has been torn down to make way for a new state-of-the-art facility, but they preserved one of the old three-story brick buildings for the museum. Hazel Patton is the former chair of the museum's board.
8: This building was built in 1883, and it, this part was the original state hospital.
2: And was it, it was called an asylum when it
8: opened? or Yes, this, the street you came on, Center Street, was called Asylum Avenue until the early 1900s. Sorry, and
2: now I turned on, because it's the 21st century, onto Recovery Way.
9: All right. <laughs> so this is the section about the cuckoo's nest, obviously.
2: Catherine Dysart is also with the museum. We have a large uh, section here devoted to, to the to the film with quotes from the producers, pictures of the film, pictures of the actors.
8: We found the TV in the trash. So this
2: is a. Uh, this is the original.
8: That's the real key. TV. There it is.
2: Oh, so the scene where the TV goes on is running on this very TV. That's nice. Right. That's meta. So
9: behind you um, shows the about the ninety patients who were on the payroll and the hospital staff that worked as well.
2: It's interesting that. The, a movie and a, and a novel whose whole theme is, oh my God, mental hospitals, they're terrible. That, that you would cooperate with, with such a production.
10: I think that's really uh, Dr. Brooks. I'm Dean Brooks. I'm a superintendent of the Oregon State Hospital from 1955 to 1981.
2: I was fortunate to talk with Dean Brooks not long before he died at age 96.
10: Very shortly after the book came out. A member of the governor's staff called me and said he had just read this new book about Oregon State Hospital. It was One floor Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I read it. I hated it. I thought it was awful. That wasn't the way our state hospital was.
2: Still, he was curious when he noticed that a stage production was being performed at the University of Oregon, and so he went. And uh, then began to realize... I was
10: seeing this thing completely wrong. It was not about the state hospital. It's about the system. The use and misuse of power can take place wherever we
2: have institutions. So when the producers approached Dr. Brooks about making the film, he was receptive. Dr. Brooks rather astutely pointed out that we
9: can either let them in and watch them or they'll go off to a sound set someplace and make it all up and we'll have no control over how the Oregon State Hospital is portrayed. We were
10: going to have the name. It was going to be Oregon State Hospital regardless. If we're going to have the name, we not play the game.
2: And, and then at, at what point in the process did, did you get cast to, to <laughs> essentially play yourself? <laughs>
10: Okay, well, Milos Foreman and a writer, Larry Hellman, came and lived at the state hospital in one of the empty wards for nearly six weeks. Well, I would go around with them on occasions and introduce them to various people. Larry kept saying to Milos, Milos, can't you see Dean, that's me, as Speevee? And then one day I got a call. He said, this is Miloš. We'd like to come up and have you read for us. You've got at least five arrests for assault. Yeah. What can you tell me about that?
3: Five fights, huh? Rocky Marciano's got 40 and he's a millionaire. That's true. That is true.
2: Miloš Forman threw out those parts of the script Instead, he just gave Dr. Brooks the fictional patient history of Randall McMurphy and told the doctor to do his job. Of
10: course, it's true that you went in for statutory rape. That's true, is it not, uh, this time?
11: Absolutely true. But, Doc, she was
3: 15 years old, going on 35, Doc, and uh, she told me she was 18 and she was uh, very willing, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I practically had to take to sewing my pants shut. Oh, we did a lot of improvisation. Brad Dourif, Jack
7: was genius at that.
11: There he is, Billy the Club.
7: You know, many of the things that happen in the film are not in the script. Film professor Douglas Unger. I think that aided Foreman in humanizing the patients in a way that I don't think audiences in America had ever seen before. All right, now we each one of us has got a fish. What are you laughing
11: at, Martini? You're not an idiot? Huh? You're not a goddamn loony now, boy? You're a fisherman?
2: (laughs) Nicholson even found a way to use improv to help humanize Nurse Ratchet. One day,
12: Jack said,
2: what's her name? This was very
12: early on.
2: This is Louise Fletcher, who played her in the film.
12: And it shocked me when he asked me that. I said, Mildred, oh, he clocked that. And then about halfway through the movie, he comes back from his first shock treatment. He acts like he's demented when he comes in, and all the boys are very nervous about him. And then he
6: he snaps back. Look at the faces on you.
12: He walks toward his chair and... Would you like to rest today, or would you like to join
7: the group? He says, I'm proud to join the group, Mildred.
12: And I turned red, completely red. I blushed. He, he planted that
3: early. We had a two-week rehearsal period at the hospital, and everybody had to go in alone, nobody else in the cast. Into maximum security for an afternoon, and just talk to the fellows there. Everybody seemed so normal to me. They were crazy. I mean, that there were people who had killed people and people who had um, burned buildings down repeatedly. One guy, you know, was very normal, and you know, and then told me he was. As soon as he got out, he was going to be president of Brazil or someplace. So they were crazy, but they didn't seem so at first. I mean, it was astounding how normal they seemed. And yet there was this tiny little difference that was, meant the world.
2: At Dr. Brooks' insistence, patients were given jobs in every one of the departments, not just as background actors, but helping with costumes, makeup, and on and
8: on. The patients that worked here were all given union-scale wages. I think that he decided that it would be better for the patients. And it wasn't so bad for Salem's economy. It was great for Salem's economy.
2: (laughs) Really? Yeah.
8: Absolutely. Brought lots of... Well, it brought a whole crew here that stayed here for months.
3: Salem, Oregon was nothing happening. There was like three or four restaurants, period. I mean, we knew the singer in and the, and the one kind of band that was in town.
12: You know, I was so tempted to go out with these guys every night, which they did. You know, they were a pack, and I couldn't do that. I couldn't do it. I needed that space between us. It was. I saw it as a huge sacrifice because I wanted to be having fun, too. Interesting.
2: And did that help, do you think? It,
12: oh, definitely it helped.
2: Fletcher was not well known when they cast her in the role. They were offering it to many actresses. One hears of Anne Bancroft, Geraldine Page,
12: Jane actor, Fonda.
2: actor after actor.
12: Yeah, Angela Lansbury.
2: Nobody wanted it.
12: You knew nothing about her, ever. You find out not one detail about Nurse Ratchet except what you see on the screen. There's no history, there's no what did she do before and what made her the way she is. So
2: it's quite a challenge. And instead of the inhuman robot portrayed in the novel, Fletcher decided to play Nurse Ratched as she might conceivably exist with human motives. For a really frightening
12: villain, you need someone who is a real person.
2: Good morning, Miss Ratched. Good
0: morning. Good morning
12: Ratched. Here's a woman of a certain age, not old, not young. Good
0: morning, Miss Ratched
12: whose life is moving along and she has complete control of it and everything around her. Hi. When suddenly someone appears and shakes her world up.
3: You think it might be possible to turn that music down so maybe a couple of the boys could talk?
12: And she doesn't like it one bit.
3: That music
8: is for everyone, Mr. McMurphy.
12: Yeah,
3: I know, but you think we might ease it down a little bit so maybe the boys didn't have to shout, huh?
12: What you probably don't realize is that we have a lot of old men on this ward who couldn't hear the music if we turned it lower. That music is all they have. Your hand is staining my window. It's a little exciting. Now calm down. The best thing we can do is go on with our daily routine but she knows that eventually she will win. Well, gentlemen, in my opinion, if we send him back to Pendleton or we send him up to Disturbed, it's just one more way of passing on our problem to somebody else. You know, we don't like to do that. How many people in positions of power feel that they know best? I think we can help him
2: that's interesting so you imagined this person this nurse ratchet as having being well-intentioned totally totally well-intentioned that's what's so scary
12: absolutely she doesn't see her behavior as as it really is who does who does who, who sees that they're really evil
2: You're listening to American Icons, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I'm Kurt Anderson. This is Studio 360 from Public Radio International in association with Slate. define American icons as works of art that help us understand our country and what it means to be an American. What's your American icon? Tell us the novel, movie, song, play, or building that you think we should cover in our series. You can send us an email to... Incoming at Studio360.org. That's incoming at Studio360.org. And head to Studio360.org where you can listen to all of our American icon series, like the one about Andy Warhol's soup can paintings. The
3: can was for Andy Rough Trade, you know, like a sailor.
6: And Miles Davis's Kind of Blue. Kind of Blue was a record that, if you had it on you, it showed that you had intelligence that you had taste,
2: that you were hip. It's all at studio360.org. Studio 360.
0: I'll
7: be seeing you on the outside, you know what I mean?
1: By the time you get out of here
7: you too old to even get it up. 68 days, buddy. 68 days. That's in
1: jail, sucker. Like you a... still don't know where you're at. Yeah, where am I at? Oh, Washington. With us, baby. you with us.
13: When the movie came out, I guess it was in 75, I was really resistant to seeing it because it, it was so, so vivid
2: and, and, you know, really brought a lot back
12: Stay with
2: us until we let you go. Mindy Lewis read One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest while she was a patient in a mental hospital. Cuckoo's Nest is as internalized for me as my own experience. I'm Kurt Anderson, and that book is our subject today in Studio 360's American Icons. I went into the hospital in
13: 1967.
2: Three months before her 16th birthday.
13: I'd been cutting school, spending days in Central Park, smoking pot. I was shy, phobic, insomniac, introverted, provocative. When I took an overdose of aspirin, the psychiatrist advised my mother to to have me hospitalized. It's all in that book. It's all there. The sterility of the environment, lining up for meds. All of your behavior is being observed, scrutinized, and classified. Compliance and passivity is expected.
1: The guys file by and get a capsule and a paper cup.
13: And medication, of course, is all part of that.
1: On rare occasions, some fool might ask what he's being required to swallow.
13: We had a head nurse whose name was Woodbury, but we called her something that rhymes with woodchuck. And we would, you know, amuse ourselves by watching her fair skin turn neon pink, um, much like McMurphy would do with Nurse Ratchet.
1: She can't have them see her face like this. She uses all the power of control that's in her. Gradually, she goes into her good morning routine like there was nothing different.
13: I really related to McMurphy because um I was extremely rebellious. We would either hoard and exchange drugs or smuggle them in through the attendants. They were the ones who arranged after-hours trysts between male and female patients and that is how I lost my virginity. And it was kind of a kind of like like a game in a way, you know. I was determined not to let them get to me. They'd lower my drugs, they'd raise my drugs, they'd give me privileges, they'd take away privileges. And on another level, you do start playing that game and you do start defining yourself in terms of, of illness. And for me it was, you know, well, what if they're right? You know, was there something really wrong with me?
1: I start the fog machine and it's snowing down cold and white all over me like skim milk.
13: In the book, the chief, right from the beginning, is talking about the fog. And, and it's a recurring motif throughout the book.
1: I can't see six inches in front of me through the fog, and the only thing I can hear over the wail I'm making is the big nurse, whoop, and charge up the hall with that wicker bag. He just wants to
13: slip into the fog, the fog that comes from being medicated, the fog that comes from being inert, the fog that he saw being released into the ward like noxious
1: gas. And I'm glad when it gets thick enough that you're lost in it and can let go and feel safe again.
13: That was a profound image that I also related to because that's what it did feel like when I was highly medicated and just thought my life was over and thought there was no future.
2: Much, much later, in her mid-40s, Mindy Lewis wrote a memoir about her experience called Life Inside. In the course of her research for that book, she discovered she'd been misdiagnosed, that she'd never really been mentally ill. You know, for some people who
13: wind up in hospitals who really need to be there, they need the simplicity of an ordered daily routine. There is real mental illness, but, you know, there is at some point a choice of how are you going to see yourself? Are you going to see yourself as ill? Are you going to see yourself as, as a human being?
9: Patient treatment changes every day, because all staff are working to try and make it better.
2: Catherine Dysert of the Oregon State Mental Hospital Museum. The movie was filmed in one of the buildings at the Oregon State Hospital.
9: Sometimes things that seem like a good idea at the time, people think better of later. I mean, the whole eugenics movement, when patients were sterilized, fell into disfavor, and um, they stopped that. It doesn't mean it didn't happen, and we're honest about the fact that it happened, but things change, and they're in constant flux.
2: Um, so what are we seeing here? Are these, this looks like electric shock things, maybe? Or? This is
9: electric shock over here.
2: In the novel, electroconvulsive therapy is shown as brutal and primitive, used not to treat symptoms, but to punish. They look pretty simple and small. So this is just a big battery with some meters and dials on it, I guess.
9: Essentially, um, it obviously plugs into a wall unit. You can see the headpiece up there that would have gone on either side of the patient's head. So It's
2: like a big clamp with a couple of uh, metal discs that go on your temple, I guess? Yes. Uh-huh. What's that?
3: Conductant.
2: A little dabble, do you. Fifty years ago, was electroconvulsive therapy lots more commonly used, especially in state hospitals, than it is
14: today? Uh, yes, yes, I think he, I think you'd have to say that.
2: John Talbot is a professor of psychiatry at the University of Maryland and a past president of the American Psychiatry Association. He has written extensively on the way we treat mental illness.
14: And I think you'd have to say that uh, that, that one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Depiction of it really was 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 horrifying.
8: Are you ready? I'm ready. Here we
12: go.
2: It seems to me it was probably important in stigmatizing that as a as a therapy. Do, do you agree? Right.
14: Oh, absolutely. And and some states and some Um, state hospital systems immediately banned it.
11: I think the book has had a very strong influence on the public's general perception of what the hospitals were like at that time, what was wrong with people, and how they were treated in the hospitals.
2: Dr. E. fuller Torrey, a psychiatrist and founder of the Treatment Advocacy Center.
11: And certainly when Kesey's book came out, many of us read it.
2: What made Cuckoo's Nest so potent was that it was widely read. This wasn't some journal article, but a mass-market novel, a Broadway play, and Oscar-winning movie. There were more scholarly, theoretical arguments about the nature of insanity, like The Myth of Mental Illness by Thomas Szasz. But when you saw the charismatic McMurphy's punishment for attacking Nurse Ratched, you had to ask, could it really happen like that?
1: The ward door opened. And the black boys wheeled in this gurney with a chart at the bottom that said in heavy black letters, McMurphy, Randall P., post-operative. And below this was written in ink, lobotomy.
2: And just for, so that our listeners know exactly what a lobotomy is, what is a lobotomy? How is it performed?
14: By driving a, an ice pick uh, into the eye uh, space Um, and essentially wiping out fibers in the brain. Frontal lobe castration. I
1: guess if she can't cut below the belt, she'll do it above the eyes. You mean ratchet. I do indeed. I didn't think the nurse had to say so for this kind of thing. She does indeed.
2: Is it plausible that a nurse on staff would have had the authority to get the medical staff to, to do such a thing?
14: Yeah, sure. Um, let, uh, I, I, boy, I'll get hate mail for this. The nursing staff really know the patients. So the nurse essentially has the power to do that, even though the doctor does at the time or retrospectively uh, authorize it. What were
2: the indications for doing a lobotomy? What, why were they used? Extreme violent
10: behavior, This, these are the ones I knew about. Mm-hmm. We just didn't know what to do.
2: Dr. Dean Brooks of the Oregon State Hospital, where the novel takes place.
10: We did The last lobotomy in
2: uh, Salem was done in 1958. Right around the time that Kesey was writing about Randall McMurphy.
14: In the best of cases, it was people who had intractable symptoms people who say uh, wash their hands so constantly that they were raw and bleeding i think it was however used frivolously for patients who were annoying look uh, the, the elderly in nursing homes are sedated to keep them from making trouble for the nursing staff i mean it's not a, this is not a new phenomenon But
2: even if McMurphy's punishment was realistic or at least plausible, Dr. Talbot and Dr. Torrey both feel that the book and the film were importantly wrong about mental hospitals and what happens there.
11: The thing that bothers me most about the Kesey book and and movie and the effect that it's had on American culture and American psychiatry is the illusion that most of the patients in the hospital were not really very sick and if you just open up the door, they'd live happily ever after.
3: Jesus, I mean, you guys do nothing but complain about how you can't stand it in this place here, and then you haven't got the guts just to walk out? I mean, what do you think you are, for Christ's sake, crazy or something? Mm-hmm.
14: The movie ha- was was powerful, and, and Nicholson especially was, was just, just communicated this this zany um, And you got an idea, or I got an idea, that that it's fun to be psychotic. Well, gee gee whiz, it is not
11: fun. Chief Broom probably ended up homeless, living under the bridge and being victimized and probably didn't live very long once he left the hospital.
2: Mindy Lewis has a different idea about what happens to Big Chief. I see him as a
13: metaphorical figure, and I see him um, reclaiming his power. And I see it, you know, as as something larger than, well, what's going to happen to the chief? It's what's going to happen to all of us.
2: By making the story realistic, the movie looked more like a critique of mental hospitals. Right at the time when mental hospitals all over the country were being closed and emptied, the patients liberated into society, which didn't
14: work out so well. Those people went on the streets, and most large cities, the largest mental health facility is the prison. But
2: Kesey's novel was always after something different, something bigger.
14: Authority itself. I thought it was, in, in a way, a parable. It's an allegory. Truthful enough.
5: It never happened, but it's all true. Truth is more than a collection of facts.
0: The book, like all great literature, says different things to different people.
2: Barbara Tepe-Lupak, the professor who taught Cuckoo's Nest for years.
0: And I just think about someone like Miłosz Forman. His parents uh, were engaged in anti-Nazi activities. They died in the concentration camps. Miłosz Forman himself had his own political experience of the Prague Spring. For
12: you, it's a book. It's a literature. It's a fiction. But for me, it was reality. I lived it. Communist Party was my big nurse.
0: I remember I was teaching a course to graduate students in Poland in the months and the weeks immediately before the imposition of martial law in Poland in December of 1982 and the students found the book to be a virtual call to action and a model for rebellion against a communist regime which was after all like the faceless all-powerful combine
10: it happens in every uh,
12: level of government it happens in churches in banks In schools. We all have people in our lives who want to control us in our academic careers or work life or marriage or politics.
10: Not all big nurses are wearing a a nurse uniform, believe me.
2: One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest came out as a novel in 1962 and the movie in 1975. In that span of time, the counterculture was born, went mainstream, and had already receded. Distrust of authority became the norm in America. We'd become a nation of McMurphys, joking and kicking and screaming, but not finding a way to change the system.
6: We were kind of all drowning in that uh, romantic fatalism where a good ending was a sad ending. Chuck Palahniuk,
2: the author of Fight Club.
6: You know, Bad News Bears lost, and, and Rocky lost, and everyone lost. And in a way, we were all trying to, you know, deal with the fact that we'd lost in Vietnam. We'd lost so much. So many of those stories were about coming to terms with our own kind of failed dream. And when Big Chief goes out the window, that's the promise of another dream someday.
2: This Hour of American Icons was produced by Jonathan Mitchell and edited by David Krasnow. Thanks also to Melinda Ward, Ellen Widmark, Leslie Wolfe, and Chris Bannon. Passages from the audiobook of Ken Kesey reading Cuckoo's Nest were provided by Highbridge Audio. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate.
8: Studio 360's American Icons Project is made possible in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, Great Ideas Brought to Life, and by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts, Artworks.
5: PRI Public Radio International
2: Next time in Studio 360...
8: You are a clever man, yeah sometimes. <laughs> Alors.
2: When the French artist J.R. and the legendary New Wave filmmaker Agnes Varda teamed up, they found they had similar tastes. We love chocolate eclairs. We ate more eclairs than we actually should film.
8: Well, it's what we call a sugar mouth.
2: The sweet new movie Faces Places next time in Studio 360 from Public Radio International in association with Slate.